According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 8 is our passage today. This is our first look at verses 12 through 20. Episode number 3 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus Christ. Episode 1 being the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Episode 2 being the adulterous woman that we spent some time on, uh, demonstrating its uh, uh, position and, and it's the fact that those verses uh, are not legitimate verses in the original manuscript of the Gospel of John. And now we're ready to begin uh, point 3 in the Harmony of the Gospels. As I said, the last uh, Prean and Judean ministry This is Christ, the light of the world. One of the great I am messages in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. And that's what we'll deal with here today. Verse 12 says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And that begins, you would think that would begin an amazing Bible conference where people would be all excited and they'd, they'd be overwhelmed by the message of I am the light of the world. And they would... They would relish the invitation and the welcome to follow Christ and have the light of life. Who wouldn't want that? Well, these guys don't because they have several objections to his message. And they, in fact, accuse him of being a self-witness and being invalid. And uh, the rest of this paragraph uh, down through 20 is just one great big fight. And so that's what we'll uh, be taking a look at here today and in the weeks to come. Before we begin, though, let's take time for silent prayer, giving you the opportunity to uh, make sure you're in fellowship. I don't know how, Carnal, you might have gotten in prayer meeting, but this will give you the chance. I was actually about 10 minutes ago out here, and I lost a game of Scrabble. So I will be confessing to make sure I'm in fellowship when uh, we have Bible class. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice that you are a God of truth and that you have selected in your wisdom to not hide your truth or keep it withheld or keep it to yourself, but you are not only a God of truth, but a revealer of the truth. And Father, you have revealed your truth unto us. We thank you for this privilege and this blessing to assemble together and to receive instruction. We thank you, Father, that we can have the Word of God as a stability, as an anchor for our soul, this world is filled with people that are adrift, that have no anchor, no absolutes that they can stand upon. So, Father, we thank you that you've provided this for us. We do ask for your hand of blessing upon us as we study, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Let's take a moment to silence cell phones while we're at it. I received five different phone calls this morning and uh, was not bothered by any of them because I had my phone on silence for the uh, prayer meeting. All right. Christ, the light of the world. Let's go through it. As I mentioned, verse 12 already, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. This follows a chain that actually goes back through chapter 7, and we'll take the time to examine that. He got up in the midst of the feast and began to teach, and it seems like everything he said just made people mad, and then he'd say something else and make people mad. And we have this pattern, and so it continues here in chapter 8 without the, the break for the adulteress and her story. Uh, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not be, will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. 
And we'll discuss that. We'll discuss the requirement in the law that testimony has to be validated, although it is interesting that testimony uh, is validated in realms of law breaking, in realms of law violations, and in realms of guilt, where condemnation cannot take place without two witnesses. Uh, nevertheless, it, they can apply it, or they try to apply it, for positive declarations and so forth, which would seemingly require any prophet from the Old Testament time to go ahead and have a partner where uh, two people could stand up and reveal the same thus saith the Lord message. Uh, it's, it's almost nonsensical, but we will address it because they have, at least they think they have, a, uh, a, an argument to make here. And Jesus tells him in verse 14, he says, you know what, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come, came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. Now notice, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. And uh, clearly, uh, that then becomes your second witness for any prophet who stands up and says, Thus saith the Lord. He is not a solo uh, messenger. He is not a take-my-word-for-it kind of guy, because God himself is testifying that this is his message. And that validates the ministry of any prophet. The miracles that God provides for the, uh, for the prophet to perform as their credentials uh, validates that God the Father is the one that lifted them up. God the Father is the one who sent them. And God is, in fact, the source of that particular message. So you've got the witness of God. You've got the witness of the miracles. You have the witness of Scripture because a prophetic utterance has to agree with Scripture, what has previously been revealed, and so forth. Let's wrap it up here in verses 19 and 20 then. So he says um, in verse 16, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, but I'm not alone in it, but I am the father who sent me. Then verse uh, 17, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. Uh, we're going to point out when we examine that, that's the testimony in an adversarial role. That's the testimony for judgment, for condemnation. You can't put a man to death on the basis of one of one te uh, witness. See, uh, you can invade a, a, a ranch and take 400 children captive on the obedience of one anonymous phone call, but you cannot, in the Mosaic law anyway, you cannot um, convict on the basis of a single witness. So he says, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. The, the evidence of the miracles themselves uh, demonstrate that the, Father, the Father's testimony coincides. Verse 19, so they were saying to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. It's a message that, uh, I guess to say the least, sparked uh, outrage. It sparked even more hostility. They've been sending officers to arrest him even prior to this, and uh, the 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 paterological teaching will anger Satan more than anything else. And the reason why, as we've been studying on our ministry workshop class, is Satan views himself as a counterfeit father. And there is no realm of teaching in the Bible that he hates more than paterological teaching that reveals the, the nature, the work, the priorities, the, the, uh, all the details about God the Father. He hates it more than he hates the teachings about Jesus Christ. Because he views himself not as a false Christ, but as a false father, as an alternative father, a substitute father, a, a better father than the father. 
And he's going to try to prove that to the world when he unveils his only begotten son to this world, the, the one that the world will wonder at and, and be amazed by, but uh, the one that our scripture calls Antichrist, the one that goes forth to deceive. So, paterological messages, as I was saying a moment ago, paterological messages, a teaching that pertains to the Father. The Greek pater means father. Anything paterological is the study of the Father. And it sparks satanic hatred unlike anything else you can imagine. So when he's talking about his father here, it, uh, it, gets, it gets rough. And uh, we're headed in this chapter down to some of the more confrontational passages. Uh, I think the, the pinnacle of which comes in verse 44, where you are of your father, the devil. Where it, comes, it becomes obvious. See, they were claiming Abraham as their father. And he says, no, I'm not going to let you get away with that. Your father Abraham wouldn't do the things you're doing. Abraham welcomed me to see my day, to, to dream that my day would come prophetically. You actually see it before your very eyes, and you're doing what your father Abraham would not do. He says, no, don't claim Abraham for your father. Your father is the adversary, and that's who you're seeking to please. So we'll, we'll be at that point here shortly. All right, now let's get some context for what's going on here in verse 12, and particularly the context in the light message, because that's a dominant theme in the Gospel of John. And if we get nothing else covered today, I want you to at least see the survey of light messages in the Gospel of John. So point one in your outline, and I think I've got nine overall points for, uh, for this study. I don't have paper notes this morning, so I'm just going based on memory and... When the points come up on the screen, I'm going to be a surprise like you guys to see what comes next. Normally, I like to have the paper notes here as well where I can kind of spot ahead and see what's coming. Um, but point one, this light message follows a number of previous light messages in John. We've seen some already. In fact, there are three that precede this one and three that come after. This is the middle of seven light messages. And the centerpiece of seven light messages is a great I am, ego amy, I am message as it pertains to light. There are also uh, seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, but um, they coincide with the seven light messages right here in this particular instance. All right. What were the previous ones? I'll give them to you under A, B, and C. The book started in chapter 1 with a light message. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you want to write down the point before I start reading this, subpoint A, the witness to the light and the true light. That's how the book began. The book began by revealing the witness to the light. That was the forerunner, John the Baptist. And then the true light, which is Jesus Christ. That's how the book began. Remember, this gospel was written decades after the other three gospels. The synoptics were on the scene for at least 10 years, possibly up to 20 years, before uh, the Holy Spirit inspired John to compose this fourth gospel. And it's got, obviously, the most unique beginning with an in-the-beginning statement and uh, the, the glories of the incarnation of Christ from eternity past. So the first light message comes in the very first chapter. It's verses 4, 5, 7, 8, and 9. Five references to light very early in the opening chapter. And I've simply titled it, The Witness to the Light and the True Light. So as we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, 
And apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. This is why we understand that Jesus Christ is the agent of Trinity responsible for the actual creative acts. The Father planned it, the Father designed it, the Father ordered it, and the Son, in obedience, did what the Father designed. So you can claim both the Father and the Son uh, for a creative role, but it was the Father as the architect, the Son as the carpenter. All things came into being through him. Then verse 4, in him was life, and notice, the life was the light of men. The light of men. And this is going to pertain directly to our study in John chapter 8, because he speaks about being the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that uh, links... uh, Entirely, that links the light that he speaks about in the I Am message from chapter 8 with the light of his own nature from eternity past as God the Son. So that will be, uh, that'll be hopefully a, a blessed study for us to tie those things together. So uh, the light of man, and light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Light stands opposed to the absence of light, which we refer to as darkness. The truth be told, there's no such thing as darkness. Darkness does not exist. If anybody asks you about that, just say, that's fine, I don't believe in darkness. All right? Darkness is simply the absence of light. It's all it is. You can't create darkness, but you can take away light, and the consequence then will be a condition of darkness. Uh, Further down, we read uh, about the witness of the light with John. Uh, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, as a martyr, as a testifier. Uh, to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. This is the role that you and I have as evangelists, that we are lights in this uh, world amongst the children of darkness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And we're to walk as children of light. And we are to uh, provide for that, not that it's coming from the source of ourselves, but that it is pointing the way to the true light, just like John the Baptist did. Uh, very clearly in verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Then verse 9, the true light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And the aspect of truth there, it's not, it's hard for us in English, we think of truth as the opposite of false. True as opposed to the lie. And so we think that, okay, Jesus was the true light, that means that this other kind of light must be false light. And that's, that's an improper dichotomy. Uh, the, the, the Greek adjective that applies here is true as opposed to, um, not necessarily false, but as opposed to a replica, or as opposed to an imitation, see, um, for instance, you know, uh, <laughs> someone might believe that their diamond ring is actually a true diamond, and they may not realize that it's a cubic zirconium or some other kind of thing, right? And so we say, well, this is a true diamond as opposed to a, a facsimile or a replica or a false diamond, as it were. Um, but the important, what I'm trying to illustrate is that this true here is not as opposed to false, but it's as opposed to... Uh, a replica, or as opposed to an imitation. Um, the tabernacle was a replica. It was a, it was a representation of the true tabernacle in the heavenlies. That's not to say that the tabernacle on earth was somehow false. It wasn't a phony tabernacle. It was a legitimate tabernacle. But it was a replica of the true, legit, the, the real reality there in heaven. And that might be the best way to uh, to think of it. 
So we have the witness to the light, and we have the true light. And that's how the gospel began. And it's, uh, I think it's a, a foundational principle here in this first chapter that uh, the very nature of the Son himself, the very nature of his life is the provision of light for the, uh, the uh, realm of humanity. And uh, the more we study light, the more we realize that the physics, the science of physics of our generation doesn't have a clue what light might be all about. If they think it relates somehow to the sun or to the light producing uh, balls of gas in our in our galaxy, they need to think again because uh, day one was let there be light and the sun, moon and stars were not visible till day four. There is an aspect of light that is completely separate from um, astronomical uh, phenomena, as I pointed out, balls of gas in our galaxy. The second light message comes in chapter 3. Again, it comes in the context of an evangelism message. You have uh, the Pharisee who comes by night, and he's told that he must be born again. So we find the provision of light in a context that relates to the um, the process of of uh, disseminating the good news to a dark world. Same in chapter 1, same in chapter 3. All right, now, different Bibles choose where to stop their red letters or where to put their red letters, and I don't know what you have in front of you. Mine doesn't even have red letters, so how about that? Um, We know that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus at least in verse 10, because Jesus answered and said to him, And we have a quotation. The debate comes in as, well, when did Jesus stop talking? Did he go down through um, verse 15 and stop there? In other words, then verse 16 is John's conclusion. Or did Jesus continue to voice this? And uh, quotation goes down through verse 21. And people have different views on that. It doesn't matter really. Um, because the fact that the, the placement of these verses in our Bible is enough for us to accept them as God-breathed and inspired, and, and we have to live by them. All right. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's a gift of the Father, the provision for eternal life, conditioned upon faith in that, uh, that finished work. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, That's going to come up in our text here when he talks about being the light of the world. And he says uh, that he's not here for the purpose of judgment. Although he does say, even if I am, I'm qualified. And we'll address that. Verse uh, 18. He who believes in him is not judged. But he, uh, he who does not believe has been judged already. Past completed action, present ongoing results. You are born by default in that condemned status. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The condition for eternal life is the application of faith. Verse 19, this is the judgment. Notice that the light has come into the world. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. This is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. (laughs) <laughs> this is the verse I quoted last week when I was sitting here in the dark and Cliff Beveridge walked in and said, Pastor, do you want some light on in here? Said, no, that's all right. I love the darkness. All right. 
Everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is the motivation, by the way, for all ancient and modern applications of so-called atheism. It's easier if you if you just go ahead and avow right here, right now that there is no God, then uh, you don't have to worry about the light shining on your wickedness. Because there is no God, there is no absolute standard of righteousness, no one can tell you what's right, what's wrong, what to do, and you don't even have to think about it, because there is no God. Well, that whole attitude goes back to what this verse talks about, is that the hatred of the light is such, because it exposes uh, the reality of what you're doing. And you can deny all you want, it doesn't change the reality that what you're doing does defy the absolute standard of the God you say doesn't exist. So, uh, anyway, I have a lot of fun with that, and I usually take... Norm Geisler's approach with any professing atheist that I encounter. Uh, every, you could do the same thing, by the way, if you read uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Great book. And next time somebody tells you uh, that they don't believe in God, says, okay, I don't believe in atheists. And it, it's, it's confrontational, it's effective, and it's, it, it shocks them. Like, what do you mean you don't believe in atheists? I'm standing right in front of you. Can't, don't you believe your very eyes? No, I don't believe in atheists at all. If you don't believe in God who's right in front of you and, and who, evidence of him is everywhere to behold, then I don't have to believe in you either. I don't care if you're standing right in front of me. I don't think you are. And I don't think you're an atheist anyway. In any event. You can use a lot of these approaches in your own uh, evangelism, in your own apologetic ministry, and all the rest. So it's, uh, there, there are good techniques there in, in that Norm Geisler book. Anyway, the rest of this, uh, verse 21, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You see, light is not only the provision for our salvation, Jesus Christ, the light coming into the world, but light continues to be an influence after our salvation. In fact, the course of our entire walk is in the light of his, of his truth, in the light of his word. And that's what uh, the message in John 8 deals with, with I am the light of the world, and he who follows me does not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We have that as an ongoing possession. It's part of our heritage of being sons of light. And that light becomes our... Uh, our possession, our nature, our tool, everything that we use for the uh, Christian way of life, the walk by faith. So that's the second light message. The third light message that comes in John is the lamp message in John 5.35, what I simply call the lamp light. Realizing that a lamp is uh, a little small, uh, a lamp has uh, a finite duration based on the quantity of the oil that keeps it uh, fueled. Uh, the lamp is not a overwhelming source of light himself. And this is uh, a good metaphor here in describing the ministry of John the Baptist because he indeed shined forth and yet his uh, ministry did come to, a, uh, come to an end here. But in John 5.35, uh, back up to verse 33, and, th- and this was uh, another instance where they accuse him of, of not having enough testimony or not being truthful. Um, and, and, and I find it remarkable as well because he says uh, about judgment and testimony in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, those are his words, and those are the words he gave them in Jerusalem the year prior to the events we're looking at now in, in uh, a year and a half prior to the events we're looking at now in, in chapter 7 and 8. 
because this was his his previous trip to Jerusalem in the Passover of uh, of 31 A.D. He didn't go to the Passover in 32 A.D. He stayed uh, outside of uh, Galilee up on the mountain and fed 5,000 for that Passover. But for this Passover in 31 A.D., he's there and he's pointing out that he's not alone in his witness. And to me, this makes their statement in chapter 8 all the more condemning because he told them the last time he was in town. He says, I'm not alone in this witness. There is another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. And he goes on to describe that John is a witness in verses 33 through 35, that the miracles are a witness in verse uh, 36, that the Father is a witness in 37 and 38, that the Scriptures are a witness in 39 and following. He's got all of these witnesses. And yet he comes back to town the very next time he's back in town in chapter 7 and 8, and they start accusing him. The Pharisees say, well, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. But he says in verse 33 of John 5, you have sent to John, that's the baptizer, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He, John the baptizer, was the lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You know, there is a benefit, and unbelievers may not want to admit it, but there is a benefit to being, we call it blessing by association, to being in proximity to light, to the reflection of God's grace. There is a benefit. And uh, even uh, I've, I've had unbelieving supervisors in previous uh, jobs, previous employment. All right. Not this employment. I've got a great supervisor in this employment. It's Jesus Christ. But previous employment, previous supervisors, godless unbelievers. And yet they came to appreciate having Christians on their shift, on their crew. They they uh, appreciate there's a benefit to having um believers, men and women with integrity, with standards of, of acceptable standards of behavior and righteousness, which I find kind of interesting. They, they had more personal affinity with the, the godless. They had more personal affinity with the, the crowd. They went out and went and drinking and chasing women and all kinds of other stuff. They had personal affinity with that off duty, but on duty, they thought those guys were kind of flaky. And they wanted more dependable workers and people that did what they said they were going to do and, and all the rest. And so you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. We can uh, consider the role we might have as a blessing by association in the light that we shine forth to this lost and dying world. All right, so we have three messages preceding chapter 8 that all focused on light. Under point 2, there are messages after this one. As I mentioned, three of them. Again, we'll... Outline them for you, A, B, and C. So point two, additional light messages follow this one as we get past uh, chapter eight. We should do a pop quiz. Do you know what they are? How well do you know the Gospel of John? Okay, we won't do that. In John 9, some of these are, are pretty similar. The nearly departed light. In other words, John uh, Jesus' warning that uh, they have the light now, but it's fixing to depart, right? Good Texas phrase. Fixing to go. Fixing to go. See, if you're not from the South, I grew up, I didn't know what fixing to was until I got to Alabama. And then in Alabama, everybody was fixing to do this and fixing to do that. And 
And then I learned it's not limited to Alabama. It's all over the South. John 9, 5, the nearly departed light. The nearly departed light. And as, as true as it was in Christ's day, I believe we should have this sense of urgency today because if we are the rapture generation, uh, the unbelievers alive today are faced with the nearly departed light in the sense that when the restrainer is lifted, when the church is removed, the light of the world that is the bride of Christ is gone. And you talk about a globe plunged into darkness. Um, there has not been a time since Adam and Eve fell that uh, this world has had a 0% redeemed uh, ratio on the, on the planet. Think about that. The morning after the rapture, whatever the, the remaining population is, world population, we've got 6 billion people right now. And let's say, uh, I'm afraid to even guess, let's say a half billion, 400 million depart. I don't know how many are truly regenerate. 100 million depart. I don't know. But whatever the remaining population is, broad as the path that leads to destruction, I know it's the large percentage of the world population today is, is not regenerate. Gonna be, there's going to be zero believers on the planet. Zero. No light. The whole world plunged into darkness. And that hasn't happened since Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And you had a population of two, both unbelievers, both needing redemption. All right. Uh, John 9. Here's the man born blind, and the disciples want to know. We got this coming up pretty quickly, by the way. Um, they say, well, this blindness is obviously divine discipline, uh, at least in their mind. Uh, so was it his parents that sinned, or uh, did he uh, commit some kind of heinous sin in the womb somehow? <laughs> you know? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? You know, For him to be born this way as a consequence of his own sin... What does that figure? Some kind of sin in the womb, evidently. I don't understand it, but Jesus answered, neither. You're both wrong. This blindness is not divine discipline, deserves suffering for sin. Haven't you read Job? Can you figure that out? There are There is suffering in the world besides divine discipline for sin. So it's neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He had to endure birth and life up to age 30 or however old he was. And um, 20 probably. He's of age to testify. So either 20 or 30 depending. And um, or maybe 14 even. But um, whatever. He lived his whole life blind so that this miracle on this day could produce glory to God the Father. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now again, in the metaphor, night and day here are being used for the presence of Jesus Christ and then the departure of Jesus Christ. We'll, de we'll deal with this coming up. And then he says in verse 5, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So we'll have to, when we get to that point, I'll give you something to think on between now and then. Does he stop being the light of the world when he leaves? Yeah, you answered that pretty quickly. All right, we'll come back to it. Uh, the nearly departed light. It's going to happen at any time. He, he's telling them this here in John 9 as he's approaching the cross. 
then there's in John 11, light for a stumble-free walk. This is very consistent with our text in John 8 as well. Light for a stumble-free walk. John 11, verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. Now there you're talking about daylight, daytime uh, journeys rather than nighttime journeys. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So he speaks of this light for a stumble-free walk in the context of the death and resurrection of Lazarus and uh, their discouragement about... uh, the adversaries that want to put him to death. That's a neat chapter. We'll spend a lot of time on that. Finally, the, the final message he gives comes in chapter 12, and it references the apostles, but by extension, you and I, church-age saints, as being sons of light. John 12, verses 35, 36, and 46. Once again, it's a pending departure nearly departed light, but it stresses, in this passage, it stresses the role of the apostles and how they will carry on after he's gone. Wow, I love this chapter. Um, He's in prayer. In verse 27, my soul has become troubled. That's not sinful. Jesus Christ never sinned. If your soul is troubled, don't feel like you have to confess that. That in itself is not a sin. You should, though, evaluate why is your soul troubled. Is it troubled because you've been involved in mental attitude sins, such as worry or fear or anger or what have you, in which case uh, your soul being troubled is the reminder of those other things that you can confess, but the soul troubled is not in itself sin. Your soul can be troubled by very positive reasons. So his soul was troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And it's interesting is that when your soul is troubled, you will consider alternatives. You will consider all kinds of things. And thoughts will come to you that uh, won't be biblical thoughts. As far as, hey, here's an answer to this problem. But it's not a biblical answer. And when you stop to consider it, you identify immediately, no, 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 that's not a biblical answer. All right? A guy comes and tells me he's got marriage problems and wants to know, uh, what do you think about divorce? I say, well, what do you care about my opinion for? What does God think about divorce? I can, let me show you some Bible verses here. You think it's a solution. What kind of solution do you think it is? It's not a biblical solution. Let's find a biblical solution. And so, but the the, the troubled soul is not a sin, and even voicing the thought is not a sin. He voices the thought here. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He voices it, admits that it'd be a possibility, but he has to immediately reject it, because he knows it's not biblical. It's not God, it's not the Father's will. For this purpose, I came to this hour. For this purpose, I came to this hour. You have to evaluate the purpose for the troubled soul, the purpose for the test. See, like Pastor Kendall Weeks, we had this talk up there, and uh, I uh, I was going on and on and talking about scripture and and talking about health tests and different things. It was when uh, 
Quentin Swafford had his heart attack up there in Spokane, and we went down there to visit with him. And, and so we were talking about why the Father gives us physical health testings. And I was pointing out, I said, you know, I, I believe that more often than not, the prayer uh, for healing, the prayer to take things away, is wrong. The way that it's voiced and the way that it's, it's often prayed over. Because it defies this verse right here. For this purpose, I came to this hour. See, well, okay, let's, let's say I'm in an hour of health testing. For what purpose am I there? Why is the Father putting me through this hour of health testing? See, anyway, we discussed this, and then about two minutes, took me all of two minutes to figure this out, it dawned on me, wait a minute, Kendall's going through this cancer test of his own right now. I thought, well, duh, why did it take me two minutes to figure that out? Kendall was supposed to be dead four and a half years ago, you know, or... Four and a half years ago is when they gave him two years, and so now he's two years beyond that, or something like that. I lose track of the calendar. I can't keep track of my own calendar. But Kendall is still teaching the Word of God. And so, what's the, what's the thing? You, you find out that you have cancer. Oh, Father, take this away. Well, ask yourself, why have you come to this hour? Why have you come to this hour? Why, why do you stop and say, okay, why do I have cancer? Did the Father direct it? Or did the Father permit it? Either way, the Father either directed for it to happen or he allowed for it to happen. In directive will or permissive will, either way. So the Father has a purpose for directing it or allowing it. And if the Father has a purpose for directing it, that means my prayer is a prayer of disagreement. The Father directed me to have this test. I said, no thank you, I choose not to participate, please take this away. Right? Maybe we're not so blunt about it. We wouldn't be so bold as to actually voice that. But what are, we, what are we really saying when we say, Father, heal me. Take this away. When he directed it, it was for his purpose. He directed what it would be. This is where Kendall has total comfort and encouragement. He directed what it would be, cancer. He directed what kind of cancer it would be. He directed what size it would be. He directed how far it would be spread. He directed where it would go, where it wouldn't go. He directed how long the test is going to last. See, this test has a duration because it's part of what the Father designed. And it might be that the duration is a year. It might be the duration is five years. And it might be that the ekbasis at the end is healing and continuation to physical life. Or it might be that the ekbasis at the end is physical death and promotion to glory. That's not our business. That's the Father's business. He crafted the plan. And so... Praying for healing may not be the Father's will. But I do know that everything he tests me in is something I'm supposed to learn from. So my prayer can be, don't heal me. My prayer is teach me the lessons I'm supposed to learn during this time of adversity. Because the sooner I learn these lessons, this is my, my thinking now, the sooner I learn these lessons, the sooner this test can be done with. So I can say, okay, nothing else to learn here. I've learned everything he's got for me here. Let's take the next test. Oh, there is no more test? Glory? Okay, great. See, that's the Father's business. So, when you say, uh, save me from this hour, take away my problems, remove this test, how can you say that? Because for this purpose, I came to this hour. For God the Father's purpose, I have been placed under these circumstances. Just rephrase that for your own application. For God the Father's purpose and the glory of Jesus Christ, I have been placed in these circumstances. 
Then he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I both glorified it and will glorify it again. I love the way that the Father testifies to the Son on three different occasions. At the baptism of the River Jordan, at the Mount of Transfiguration, and here. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard were saying that it had thundered. <laughs> Others were saying an angel had spoken to them. See, they don't have ears to hear. They just Their earthly ears heard something they couldn't figure out what it was and figured, well, maybe that was thunder or an angel or something. But he heard communication. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So Jesus, in verse 30, answered and said, This voice does not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now, judgment is upon this cosmos. Obviously, the ruler was judged eons ago. He was judged when he first fell. He was judged when he was cast out of Eden and off the holy mountain. He has continued to face judgments throughout the human stewardships. But at this moment, he is facing uh, perhaps the greatest judgment because the Father is glorifying the Son. And he's glorifying the Son through the cross and all the way to the third heaven. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, we skip on down. So this is the context for this message. The crowd, though, didn't exactly like it. The crowd then answered him, We have heard um, out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They wanted to figure, you know, we got the, what do you mean he's going to suffer and die? The Christ is supposed to live forever and reign in glory and all those good happy messages. And then they say, who is this son of man? Oh, they didn't like that title at all. Even though it's used repeatedly in Ezekiel, it's used in Daniel, it's used in the Old Testament. They despised the title because the title son of man is all too inclusive. It actually brings Gentiles into the thing. No, 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 no. Son of David. Yeah, that's cool. Son of David, that's Davidic, that's Jewish, that's our throne, that's our nation. We're we're waiting to stomp on these Gentiles that have been stomping on us all this time. But that title, Son of Man, ooh, that's not so popular. That that actually embraces some of the Gentiles too, right? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. Remember, darkness cannot comprehend or overtake the light. Same word. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. This is our privilege. This is our our blessing. And the the idiom sons of light goes back to a Hebraism, but it's uh, it's a a very Jewish phrase to a Jewish audience, but it's one that we can uh, draw application of ourselves as children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So we have church-age New Testament epistles that correlate this for our application. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. All right, so there's the final Son of Light message, which says, um, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. All right, so we've got three that precede our text in John 8. We've got three that follow our text after John 8. There are seven light, primary light passages in the Gospel of John. Let's get back to point 8 then, and we'll see how far we get with this in John 8. The uh, statements in verse 12 about being of something. So under point three in your notes, I've simply titled point three, Genitive Generalities. 
Genitive generalities. Genitive generalities. John 8, 12. And it becomes important. In, in a lot of passages, it's not as vital. I think in a lot of passages, a lot of scholars uh, do a lot of debating on questions that could go either way or could really go both ways. And as such, I think they spend a lot of time uh, unproductively. In other passages, though, it's very vital that you understand the nature of, of. All right, think about the English word of. And there's about 200 billion ways you can use the English word of. Probably not that many, but I exaggerate. All right, there's a lot of ways you can use of. There's a lot of ways you can communicate relationships in the genitive case. All right, the genitive case. I'm going to describe some of these for you, and we'll take some time to go through it. But uh, just in English, you can think we do a lot of things with of. We do a lot of things um, that could be relational. They could be um, geographical. They could be uh, source. There's a lot of ways that you can use a genitive, and, and it applies directly because we have two of them here in this text. And we have to evaluate, are they the same? Are they different? How do they, uh, how do they function? What does it mean to be the light of the world? Does that mean it's the world's light? I didn't know this world had a whole lot of light. Does this world have a whole bunch of light and it's manifest in Jesus Christ? Is he the light that has its source from the world? There must be another use of of then that, that wouldn't pertain. Um, we can use of in uh, parentage. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. And, and quite often, you can leave the word sons out. Just say James and John of Zebedee. And if you are of somebody, it's understood that, uh, that they, uh, they, they fathered you, they parented you, they gave birth to you. That's the... That's the way that the of works among offspring. Uh, all right, there's, there's several more, but let's just throw them out here. Possible understandings under subpoint A. I'll give you the possible understandings, and then under B and C, I'll tell you what my conclusion is that they are in terms of the light of the world and the light of life. Because the light of life, we then have to ask ourselves, what is the nature of that genitive? What is the nature of that light as it's... Uh, source or its product or what it what is it what is it doing with life there all right and there's a lot of these and in we're not going to dwell extensively on them but it, we have to look at them possessive genitive possessive genitive is it is it is there an ownership component to this light we use of in a similar way not as frequently but um, something that's of somebody yeah, it's kind of awkward in English to say uh, this. This is the pen of Bob, right? Normally we don't use that. I guess for it's easier to say this is Bob's pen. But the possessive pronoun Bob's, you know, with the apostrophe s, Bob's pen means literally the pen of Bob. The pen belonging to Bob. So is this possessive? We say, I am the light of the world. Is that, does that mean that it's the light that the world owns? The world has ownership of that light, the light of the world. Is this the world's light? When he says, I am the world's light, 
The world owns me as light. Is, that, is it a possessive? I don't believe it is. I'm just saying though, that this is a consideration you have, to, you have to work your way through when you're dealing with uh, a genitive case, possessive genitive. We also have uh, partitive genitives, partitive genitives, partitive, think part, P-A-R-T, partitive in which case you have a large grouping of whatever's, you know, you got a whole bag of marbles, and then you take a single marble out, and it is, but it's a part of that larger group. It is of, this marble is of this bag of marbles, for example. It's a small piece, it's a part of a larger whole. So when he says, I am the light of the world, is that part of it? Is it, is it, is it a little smaller light that's a part of the much larger light. This is a very new age, by the way, that whole concept, that the, the world, the universe, all of existence, we're all beings of light, we're all a part of light, we're going we're gonna to evolve back into lighthood when we you know, attain God's status and all of that. No, it's not a part of the genitive either. Uh, an objective genitive, objective genitive. You've got objective and subjective under points three and four. And these are the ones where most of the debates come in. Most of the baits come in, and the uh, question is uh, whether it's objective or subjective. Uh, the easiest way to illustrate would be with the love of Christ or the love of God. Okay, the love of God. What is the love of God? You take that subjectively or take it objectively. It, when you say the love of God, are you talking about the love that you have for God? Are you talking about the love that God has for us? You could take it either way. You could use it subjectively, you could use it objectively. So the love of God, what will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Is that the love that He has for us? Could it be the love that we have for God? Grammatically it can be, but in context is it? Or could it be both? There are passages that could be both objective and subjective at the same time. We love him because he first loved us. So we are the objects of his love. Uh, it is the love of God subjectively, but it's also the love of God objectively because the relationship we have as sons of light is a love relationship. So when we talk about the love or the light of the world now, is it uh, subjective, the light that the world has, or is it objective, it is the light that's for the world. In some cases, it's better instead of using of to use for to communicate your objective genitive. It's light for the world. The light of the world is the light for the world. The light of this room is the light produced by the fixtures in the ceiling for the illumination of this room. So we can talk about this room's lights and, and the fixtures up there in the ceiling are the light of this room. Alright. The light of the world. That's what we're dealing with here. It's the light that's for the world. It's the light that's provided to illuminate this world. It doesn't come from the world as a source. But it goes to the world as an object. That is the object of what the light illuminates. So we have distinctions between objective genitives and subjective genitives. There's, there's other passages by the way that. You have to really examine the nature of the of, the nature of the genitive. Is it from the source of? Is it for? Is it objective? Uh, 
Um, as I mentioned, there's love of God, but there's also faith. The faith, uh, the walk of faith. There's, there's applications that legitimately you have to linguistically look at. Uh, genitive of relationship. That's the fifth one. That's the one uh, James of, of John or John of Zebedee, Simon of, of John, and so forth. Bob of Bob of Bob. Okay, you've got of statements that, that pertain to relationship. Uh, you could also use uh, this geographically as well. We say somebody is of Austin, of Texas, of wherever. Shows you the relationship to a territory. Uh, point six, a genitive of quality. A genitive of quality. Um, a heart of compassion. That demonstrates the quality that that heart uh, expresses. A spirit of bitterness. This is the genitive of quality. You're defining the, the nature of that noun. So the light of the world, if we take it as a genitive of quality, means that the light that he shines forth is worldly. It's worldish by nature. I don't think we want to take this as a genitive of quality, right? <laughs> that the light he shines is worldly quality. No, no. He's, when he says, I am the light of the world, he's not saying that the light he shines is worldish. Okay? Linguistically, grammatically, this verse could say that if you take the genitive being a genitive of quality. But it does not fit with the consequential statement that he who walks in me uh, does not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. A um, couple more. Latin phrase meaning the material genitive. Genitivus materiae. Uh, this refers to the substance of which something is composed of. All right. This is a pulpit of, of wood. Right? Pulpit of wood. Man of flesh. Um, you know, it refers to the substance, the material makeup of, of an object. Right? You have a, uh, a heart of gold. Not materially, but quality. <laughs> All right, because if you have a material heart of gold, it's not going to support life. What would that be worth anyway? What's the typical heart weigh? Two and a half pounds. So that's 32, 40 ounces. 40 ounces of gold, that's, that's like $40,000. We could find enough hearts of gold, we could finance the new church building. All right. Um, anyway, that's a genitive that refers to material. Okay, a couple more. Um, goodness, these guys. You know, I think sometimes scholars are too embarrassed for the name they really came up with. So they went ahead and just put it into the Latin to make it look more formal and official. Epexegeticus. You understand exegesis, epi-exegesis. Anyway, I forget now what that one even is. And then the ablative genitive, the away from genitive, of meaning um, away from, away from. Anyway, there's lots of different genitives, but uh, clearly the ones that we boil it down to are in most cases uh, the subjective and, whoops, objective. We examine these ones here for most cases, and uh, that's what we do with the light of the world. And we realize it's not... Subjective. It's not the light the world produces. It's not the light the world shines. It's the light that is shined into the world because the world itself is dark. And so that's how we understand with the objective genitive. 
for the light of the world. We are, leave the question open as far as the light of life. When he says, I am the light of the world, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness. Why? Because the light of the world is exhibiting uh, visibility in the, in the sphere in which the man operates. Uh, but conversely, will have, will possess, will embrace, will enjoy and make use of the light of life. Now, the light of the world, the light of life is one and the same as uh, produced by Jesus Christ. The first one is Jesus Christ. The second one is produced by Jesus Christ, provided for mankind. As we saw in chapter one, his life was the light of man. Let's look at this. Oh, one more. I'm sorry. Genitive comparison. All right. Light of the world. Point B. Anyone, was anyone writing all those down? Point 10 was genitive of comparison. Didn't want to go too fast for that. Genitive of comparison. All right. Light of the world. The light of the world. This is the light which is for the illumination of those within the otherwise dark world. That's how we can translate it. This is how we can handle the genitive uh, and the understanding of this expression. We take it objectively. We take it as light, which is not from the source of the world, but rather it is for, it is directed into the world. So the light of the world, this is the light which is for the illumination of those within the otherwise dark world. As we pointed out, darkness is the absence of light. So if you remove the light of the world, then what's left behind is the dark world, the world without light, the, the world in darkness. Important to recognize that because with Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, for our present stewardship, the light of the world is us. You and I, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ indwells his bride. And so, although Christ personally is seated at the right hand of the Father, Christ positionally is in his bride, every single one of us. And so, Christ, the light of the world, in us, we are the ones that are supposedly to stand forth as the truth. And unfortunately, most, uh, many, I won't say most, many Believers are uh, hiding their, their bushel under a, under a basket. That's right. They're hiding their lamp under a, under a basket is what I'm trying to say. They're undercover Christians. They're, they're James Bond of the, of the, you know, they're undercover. It's actually a poor example. He's not very undercover. Basically, he introduces himself to everybody he meets as Bond, James Bond. But imagine an undercover agent who actually stayed undercover and didn't tell people who he was all the time. That's how a lot of believers are. They're saved. They're born again. They're supposedly ambassadors of this world, but you would never know it because they never talk about it. No, we are supposed to be, and, and we'll address that when we get to that point. The other genitive, the light of life. The light of life. This is the light which is from the source of eternal life. From the source of God the Son, which we receive at the moment we receive eternal life. You take our passage here and you relate it back to John 1.3. This is the light which is from the source of eternal life. 
He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, possess, enjoy, utilize, make use of the light of life. The light that comes from the source of Zoe, eternal life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, John 1, 4. So we receive life the moment we're saved. And as recipients of Zoe, as recipients of eternal life, this isn't biological life, this isn't any other kind of life, but the eternal life in Christ that produces this light, it's within us. It's within us. It's like he promised with the water that it will spring up as a source. It it springs up as a water-producing source. We are now light-producing sources in the sense that we have that life within us, that we have possessed today, right now, eternal life. And that life shines as light in in this world of darkness. Light of life. I think um, a lot of times it's preached in those terms, or not in those terms, a lot of times it's preached that, well, Jesus is the source of life. We simply reflect his light, right? Like the sun produces light and the moon reflects that light. That moon bounces the light off of, it's really the sunlight that bounces off of the moon that shows up as if it's moonlight, right? That gets preached a lot. But this passage and other passages, such as within them a spring of water welling up unto eternal life, actually indicates a generation, an internal generation on the part of each believer. will have the light of life. That the life itself is light producing. And you have that life today. You've had that life since the moment you accepted, you placed your faith in Christ. You have had that life. You're not waiting to receive eternal life when you die. You have eternal life now. And that life is the source of light, as this passage addresses, the light of life. All right, well, that's a good start. We're two minutes past the hour. That's an excellent start. We got through. I was afraid we'd get uh, bogged down in all the genitives and kind of get lost in the grammar. Uh, But we got through that. So now we can uh, follow up. What you would love to follow up with is uh, positive volition response. We'd love to see this audience get excited about being the light of life and about shining that light and, oh, what do we do and how do we live and how do we bless people with this life and this light and this love? And, uh, and no, they just basically say, you're a liar. You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And it's downhill from there. Gorgeous message. Glorious message. Totally rejected by those walking in darkness. They hate the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to assemble together. We do ask for your hand of blessing upon us. We are children of light. We are surrounded by this crooked and perverse generation. Our adversary prowls about like a roaring lion. Father, uh, keep our armor on. Keep our attention focused on the things above. And, Father, we thank you for this privilege and this opportunity. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.